Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Mary Rose. So we all lasted precisely two weeks before we realised that we have no life outside of our little online pub existence. So we decided to come back and talk shit again because everyone seemed to be missing it uh, more so than they are missing seven podcasts a week. So uh, I will be judge, jury and executioner this evening because last time I saw Facebook... Holmes is fishing on the Somme, whatever, and Ch- Johnny was in a stinky cheese coma. So neither of them are here. Therefore, I am omnipotent. Clive stands a chance because Clive is here. Hey, Clive, he's eating his dinner right now. What are you yep. eating? Quail? No, no, no. It's been a prawn stir fry. Very nice. Very nice indeed. Kit's with us. Kit has fully had enough of Southampton and just fucking emigrated to Paris. You're right, Kit. I am. Bonjour. Bonsoir. <laughs> Excellent. And we're already disappointed because he didn't take his severed head with him that he ordered. Um, and so it's don't not... Tell everyone about the severed head. Can you put this into context, why you own a severed head? Um, I, I'm doing some, some sort of science uh, work about uh, cosplay and what the extremes you can do are. And so I might have ordered a 3D printed head of Amelia Clark from Game of Thrones. I'll just say that in Kit's defence, <laughs> the mouth is closed. And the move disgust on you have on, on your face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Not... James has had a haircut as well. Are you all right, James? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm effectively self-isolating again. Why? Um, uh, family members got a procedure, so it's like uh, everyone has to self-isolate. Oh, no. What a shame. Yeah. Dorman's here in Dublin. Hey, how's back. it going? Great. Got any severed heads to talk about? Um, you no, have got a hat for his severed head, though. Yeah, I've got, I've got a Roman helmet, and I think somewhere I've also got a American Civil War hat, but I can't remember if it's Confederate or Union. So, oh, we don't want we don't want plastic Amelia Clark heads to be racist, do we, Kit? You're the one. That ordered a 3D printed severed head. You don't get to do any judging. I, uh, it's no, bad I, enough I, that she killed all the people of King's Landing without being associated with the Confederacy as well. Yeah. <laughs> Lockie's here. You all right, Lockie? Hey, uh, yeah, how are you? All right, you, you've not been doing anything weird with plastic heads, have you? 
No plastic head antics, no. I've been trying to sort of clean up some of my battlefield finds. I was on the Somme a uh, week before last, and so I've been sort of scrubbing and trying to make them shiny, but it's not really worked. Are you already emerged from your stinky cheese coma then? Yeah, um, it's more a wine kind of coma, really. I mean, essential part of any battlefield tour is filling the boot up with, uh, with wine, so that was done. Beth is nodding profusely. Yeah. Beth and I have just come off a two-hour nearly marathon Passchendaele thing for Commonwealth War Graves. Have you recovered yet? Oh, just about. Just about. It was, uh, just and it, was good, it was good fun, but... I was it was, just but I'm going to have nightmares about golf. <laughs> there was a lot of golf bashing and golfness in yeah. there. Um, but he was shit at Passchendaele, so he deserved it. Charlotte's here as well. You're right, Charlotte. Yeah, how are we all doing? We're going to call you Charlotte and elevate you from just referring to you as the cake lady. <laughs> 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 She's back. And Alina's here as well. Alina? I am here. She doesn't have a camera on because she's antisocial. On that note. Right. Today, we decided... So we did a um, show that you haven't heard it yet out there in podcast land. But Owen, you know Owen who won the best British battle ever won? with the Hastings, the Welsh guy that was like a storyteller. Uh, he's come on and given us some Welsh folklore, which was, frankly, just confirmed my suspicions that Welsh people are all fucking mad. Uh, but it was brilliant. And so we decided, hell, man, we must have this stuff all over the place, especially given that we've got a Paddy in the house. So, Paddy's got his thumbs up. We've decided to try and seek out today the most nonsense, hilarious, ridiculous bit of folklore in history. Um, and I'm wondering where to start. Who should we start with? I'm going to iron off all my victims. Let's start with Clive. Clive, are you, you were trawling the lives of the saints, weren't you? I was, because if you think about it, Christian thought and all the rest of it has been around now for 2,000 years. And at least in this country until the Reformation, the lives of the saints were probably the kind of biggest lot of stories that people would hear on a daily basis. The frescoes would be in their churches, and they weren't able to read the Bible, so they heard from the priest or whoever else the lives of the ancient saints. And even in recent times, I remember when I was at primary school, the nuns with their Irish accents would tell us all about these wonderful saints in the past who did all these terribly good things. And quite frankly, those stories were great because they were all doing miracles all the time. Bugger your action heroes. These boys were out there doing incredible things. You get people like, I don't know, St. Ethelreda, who not only died, but when they dug her up about 10 years later, they found that she hadn't rotted at all and the tumour that had killed her had disappeared. Now, you might think if you're going to do a miracle, you might do a miracle that would have left you alive rather than curing your tumour after you died. But there were so many good stories. So I spent the last week trawling through Butler's Lives of the Saints on Wikipedia, looking for the very best. And there are some real dingers in there. Some of them go really centrally to our whole cultural background. I mean, look at St. George. St. George was a guy who may or may not have lived quite a long time ago. There's a Roman version, of his, Latin version of his history. There's a Greek version of his history, which is pretty mundane. He was there, he was around, he became a Christian, he got executed, end of story. But about a thousand years ago, someone came up with a brilliant idea to embellish the story a little bit and having him slay a dragon. Well, that's pretty good stuff. 
and probably didn't happen, but still it's a story that even persists today. And we see Toby Robinson and all his mates walking around dressed up like St. George, going out to kill dragons now. Before they stuff. ironically emigrated to Spain. Of course, as refugee, refugees. refugees. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, then we get people like St. Christopher, who bumped into Satan and bumped into Christ and did all these things and carried people across rivers. All wonderful, wonderful stories. And I looked through a lot. This, I mean, one of my favourites is St. Sarah of the Desert. Now, St. Sarah of the Desert was a good one because what she did was she was a hermit and lived by the Nile. But because she was such a disciplined person, she turned her back on the Nile and didn't allow herself ever to look at it, but spent her life living by herself in the desert, plagued by the devil who tempted her with fornication for years. What the story doesn't tell us is whether she came to the temptation or not, but still pretty good stuff. And then we come to Mary I'm sorry, of Egypt. I just, with the tempting her with fornication, I just have a picture of him like gyrating around with everything <laughs> hanging out. Like, come on, you know you want it. <laughs> with a severed head. With a severed head, yeah. <laughs> and we got, then we got Mary of Egypt who gave in to fornication, was shagging around everywhere before suddenly she thought, blow this for a game of soldiers, and gave it up and became a saint. All very nice stuff. The marvellously named John the Dwarf. I mean, what better, I mean, if you're looking for a confirmation name, what better confirmation name than John the Dwarf? Let, who wouldn't go for that? Apart from me, because I went for St. Boniface, but that's another story. Anyway, trawling through all of these, the one I hit on, is probably one of the best known, but still a marvellous, marvellous story. And also a very important part of culture over the centuries, an evolving culture over the centuries, which shows the importance of these saints in our folklore. And that is Saint Sebastian. Now, we've all heard of Saint Sebastian. He was shot with arrows, wasn't he? Well, actually, he wasn't martyred with arrows. The story goes as follows. He was a Christian who decided to join the Praetorian Guard in order that he could use his power and influence in the Praetorian Guard to look after Christians and protect them. And so he joined the Praetorian Guard and did jolly well because he was a jolly good guardsman. And he became head of the Praetorian Guard. And while he was head of the Praetorian Guard, he would go down into the cells where all the prisoners were and he was converting them left, right and centre. So, doing a great job, except... One day, Diocletian, the emperor, who he was protecting as part of his Praetorian guard, found out he was a Christian and this wasn't good. So he sentenced him to death and sent him off to be shot to death with arrows. Now, St. Saint, Saint, oh, Saint Ambrose, that's the one, who wrote the life of St. Sebastian, tells the story of how he was shot with arrows so much that he had as many pricks in him as an urchin. Ambrose's words, not mine. Now, this that may come up later, but apparently it was a sea urchin he was referring to, and indeed the translation could have been hedgehog, except I know sea urchins have pricks on the outside, not the inside, but that's another story. Anyway, so he was shot by all these arrows, but he didn't die. He lay there like a hedgehog, like a hedgehog hibernating, doggo, and St. Irene of Rome came along and tended to him and cured him. And he was well again. So what does he do when he gets well? 
he walks out into Rome, sees the emperor wandering along, and accosts him and starts telling him what a barbaric bastard he is. And so what the emperor do? He told his soldiers to beat the bastard to death. And poor old Sebastian got clobbered and killed, and that was the end of him. It does make one wonder why, if he's going to have this miraculous survival from being shot by arrows, he did bother with just going to get himself killed straight away again. He could have done many other things with his life, but he didn't. So he became a martyr, and that was that. Except it wasn't that, because the story of St. Sebastian perpetuated. He's the patron saint of archers, which is a little bit ironic because they weren't that good on him. Um, he's also the patron saint of the deliverance from the plague. He was a major person in Renaissance art. Al Greco painted him, many other people painted him, because what's better than a half-naked guardsman tied to a tree? All good stuff for a nice bit of religious painting. And then more recently, and probably more importantly, Derek Jarman made his 1976 film, Sebastian. Now, if you haven't seen it, do do go and see it or get the DVD, which is out. It is a superb film, historically totally inaccurate. But it's the marvelous thing about it is it's all in Latin with subtitles. So you get the soldiers, and there are only about six of them because they were on a budget, but marching along going sinister Dexter, sinister Dexter, sinister Dexter, instead of left, right, left, right. Um, it's a hugely homoerotic film based mainly on sadomasochism. And, but it brings Sebastian to the current day where he is now a gay icon. So it's, this is folklore in history over 2000 years being relevant then and now. So in my view, St. Sebastian is one of the greatest folklore stories out there and a very useful, relevant tale for us all today. Thank you. But firstly, what my first question is, what's a DVD? <laughs> oh, God, it's what came before streaming. <laughs> um, I just, I really, really hoped when you said he had more pricks in him than, I was just really hoping in my head that that sentence was going to end Graham Norton, but it didn't. <laughs> You'd have won, hands down, before anyone <laughs> Or who was the one tempted with fornication? That one. Yeah. <laughs> Come and get it, you know you want it. <laughs> That's the little dance that goes with it that no one will get to see on the podcast. Uh, yeah, um, it is bonkers, isn't it? Like you say, so people didn't read the Bible. People just had to rely on what they were told. And it seems like they believed a whole load of crazy shit. There, there were some marvel. I remember being told stories by the nuns that were really quite spectacular. <laughs> you know, people falling off roofs and bouncing back up again, and all sorts of things. Very, very strange stories, but you know, not quite gospel, but all good stuff. But also, in the same vein, the apocryphal gospels were also the foundation of lots and lots of stories that we were told, which may or may not have been true but they certainly weren't in the kind of regular four gospels i think um it was a good place to start because it's going way way back in in terms of like the era of storytelling isn't it um so you will all notice that charlotte is furiously scribbling away and it's uh -huh. because charlotte and i are scheming 
But I think we should wait to the end to tell them what we, we've been doing the whole time they've been yeah. telling the stories. Uh, I'll keep scribbling. I'll keep yeah, scribbling. Yeah, yeah. Keep scribbling. I'm not being kept in the loop if there's scheming involved. No, yeah. not. <laughs> we will WhatsApp you so all the girls are scheming together. Uh, oh. Right. oh, guys. <laughs> and Dorman, you can be one of the girls too because we like you and you're lovely. Finally. Right. James, are you ready? Did you go yep. down the Norse mythology route in the end or did you stick local? No, I I was very tempted to do Norse mythology and a lot of the sagas because they're amazing stories. But I thought for the podcast, for the episode, I would stick with something local because it's right down the road from me and it's absolutely bonkers. And I think you'd all enjoy it. Go. So as everyone knows, I live in Birmingham. I live on the edge of Birmingham and I live next to what's known as Sutton Park. It's one of the largest urban parks in Europe. It's full of archaeology, ancient woodland, First World War stuff. There's the Roman street, Ignild Street, which survives about a mile and a half of it in the park. And it's right next to a town called Sutton Coalfield. Sutton Coalfield stands for South Town <laughs> Coalfield. Yeah, so got her yeah, fingers down her throat. <laughs> yeah, I know what I've best done it. Uh, Coalfields, there's some say that it means because it was on the side of a hill, which it was true at the time. Others, that it was next to a load of charcoal burners, which used to burn charcoal. However, the story we're going to talk about happens during the reign of Henry VIII. Yes, that. <laughs> so at this time Sutton Coalfield had really suffered during the Wars of the Roses it had been absolutely torn to bits it was in terrible state the only thing it had going for it was a guy called John Harmon who was the Bishop of Vesey known as John Vesey eventually and he ends up being Henry VIII's personal chaplain now John Harmon or John Vesey he wanted to really help his town out so he always tried to use his interests on Henry. Now, in 1528, Henry decides to come up and go hunting with the Bishop of Vesey, who's about in his 60s at this point, and Henry's about 37. So he comes up, and they're going to go hunting. Now, the park is relatively in the same state as it was back in Henry's day. There's a lot of ancient woodland. I've been in it, and you can tell. It was also a medieval royal hunting ground and deer park, some of which the boundaries survive today. So it's likely they were going to hunt for deer or boar or whatever they'd stocked the park with. So off they go in autumn 1528. They go running into the woods, either by themselves or a small hunting party. And at this point, Henry is trying to just enjoy himself because all the plague is going on and everything, trying to ignore everything that's happening that's turning to shit in his life. Um, so, yes, and at this point, he's got the shit with the Catholic Church on the one side. They don't really like him because he's the Protestant Church. Mary, he's trying to get rid of Mary. Elizabeth's not been born yet, so he's panicking about an heir. So he's just trying to enjoy himself. So they're all going in, they're happy, they're hunting, having the time of their life, probably pissed. And until Henry, he just has a little accident. We're not sure quite what happened. Some say he fell off his horse, some say he hit a tree, which uh, 
yes, imagine Henry VIII hitting a tree, ladies. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. <laughs> tree probably um, However, he gets caught unawares because there's a wild boar, or at least a boar, and it sees the king basically unaware of the boars there, and the boar charges straight at the king. If you've seen Game of Thrones, you know when uh, King Robert's killed by the boar? Because he's sozzled as a very sozzled person, and he ends up dying in his bed with his guts everywhere. Well, yeah, this is a looks like this is about to happen to poor King Henry VIII. This boar's going full pelt, charging at the king. The king's probably shitting himself seeing this boar. No one's near. Suddenly, whoosh, thunk. An arrow has come out of nowhere, hit the boar, and it seems to have killed it, either right in the heart or through the eye. Now, the thing about that is that is a big, brilliant piece of archery because boars in those days were hunted with spears. You could kill them with arrows, but you'd have to be very lucky or very good. So, obviously, the dead boars by him. The king's shat himself more than likely and panicking. And he screams to his retinue and his courtiers and the Bishop of Vesey, bring this hunter to me. Because this is raw hunting ground. They probably had a few hunters in the party. But otherwise, whoever's hunting there is probably breaking the law. So they bring the hunter to him. And surprise, surprise, it's not a hunter. It's a huntress. And so Henry's just realised his life has been saved by a woman. And not just any woman. Uh, probably a common woman from the nearby town of Sutton Coalfield. So, big womanizer Henry, the big bad warrior king as he liked to see himself, has just got his ass handed to him and saved by a common woman, which I just loved a bit. We don't know her name, unfortunately. Uh, I wish we did. <laughs> so, obviously, she's probably broken the law, but at the same time, she's just saved the king's life. So, he's there thinking... Well, okay, what does she want? So she says she wants restitution for her parents who had basically been lost land to enemy and every, enemies and everything. So he obviously rectifies that. And also he says that her and her town can use the Tudor Rose as the emblem of their town. And that stands to this day. The Tudor Rose is the emblem of Sutton Coalfield. The it also he transferred Sutton Park over the raw hunting grounds over to the town of Sutton Coalfield. So it was the first bit of legislation which protects the park to this day and means it wasn't really changed much in the many years since. So, yeah, that's the bit of local folklore. Not as long as some, probably not as crazy as some, but I just enjoy it that Henry VIII goes hunting thinks he's a big badass, and then he gets his ass saved by a girl. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> do we think it really happened? Uh, there's some information that says it does, because there was a novel released around that time that mentions the story with a bit of embellishment. Other evidence suggests that Henry wasn't there at the time, and the Bishop of Vesey wasn't there at the time, and that even wild boars weren't existing then but it could have easily been a stag so i'd love it to be true and i really hope it is just for the hilarity of it but all the evidence points that it isn't although there was a charter which did give over all the stuff to the town in 1528 so 
And they did get to keep the rose. Uh, yes, they did. So you can live in hope that that was <laughs> justified in some. Yes, it is the royal town of Sutton Coalfield. They had to fight because they thought it was lost in the 70s when it became part of the wider borough. And they fought recently. But yeah, it was never revoked and they've stuck signs everywhere. And literally there is a sign the next road over that says, welcome to the royal town of Sutton Coalfield. <laughs> yeah. I've, I'm go- let's take them seriously. Let's take them at their word. Um, the idea of Henry VIII getting his ass utterly handed to him by a girl does amuse me. Um, Charlotte, are you going to do some of your local folklore as well? No, no, we don't. Well, to be honest with you, the best local folklore we've got here in Bedford that, you know, that comes to mind is Glenn Miller played everywhere. Glenn Miller oh. played in every single place before he took off from Twinwood, which is just down the road from me. So everywhere has their Glenn Miller story here. But no, I'm, I'm coming in with my secret. Secret so, weapon. Yeah. My great aunt danced with him up there. Everyone did. Yeah. yeah. She did. Uh, Lockie, go for it. Hit us up with some bonkers folklore. All right. Yeah, we're doing First World War stuff, of course. Um, I did toy with... Uh, like trying to do the, the, the Christmas truce football thing, but um, I, I, I worry that Taft giving his head might explode or something like that. <laughs> Just an, 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 ex, uh, an expansive way of, of saying we call bullshit, wouldn't it, basically? <laughs> I mean, I'm still going to call bullshit on some First World War stuff, but yeah. um, but like a, a famous story, good old story, and it's, it's the start of the war for the British, as you know, on the Western Front anyway. The Angel of Mons. Uh, um, yeah, good classic. Yeah. Um, this is this, uh, the, the hard-pressed British Army. Okay, let's do background. Um, so the, the, the British Army, all, all four division, infantry divisions and the cavalry division goes over to um, where we expect to do some fighting. Um, Belgium, Mons. Um, and we're, we're doing as we're told by the by the French, uh, and they say, um, look after this canal line, we're going to go and smash the Germans now. That's on the 22nd of August, 1914. On that day, they have the bloodiest day of the war, the entire war, for any one army. Um, was it 27,000 men killed in a day the French have? Double that number wounded? Absolutely stunning. So they start dropping backwards. Killed a lot of Germans as well, mine. Um, but that leaves um, the little tiny British army holding this canal line with about 300,000 Germans bearing down on them. Um, and that's quite a lot, actually. Um, very heavily outnumbered. And I think the British, British army's effectively got two jobs at this time. First one, stop the Germans winning the war now. Yeah. Like now, right now, 1914. Don't worry about 1915. We'll worry about it if we get to it. Essentially, don't fuck it up. Yeah. Second job, don't all die in doing that. Because if you do, then that's going to cause problems later. But, you know, just, yeah. So try and stay alive is is job number one. And so um, they start this retreat and start falling back and it's exhausting. And they're marching 20, 25 miles a day in in the name of keeping ahead of the German army. And and what we get in the days that follow um, is a story published um, in England uh, that they've been delivered from disaster um, by a mythical apparition of St. George and a few thousand Agincourt bowmen who have, who have appeared and, um, and shot all the Germans dead on the canal line and helped the, uh, the British escape. Now, 
this story was published on the 29th of September. Okay, so there's actually about a month or so on from the battle. Totally made up. Okay, the story of the Bowman, short story by Arthur Machen. He's just told a story. Okay, but in the weeks that follow, people like the story. Okay, so this gets pretty cool story. To be fair to them. Well, yeah, and it's kind of after the immediate danger had passed as well. We're sort of getting into October, November, and it's kind of, you're right, the, the, the fighting's now around Ypres and, and the Germans are sort of bogging down and it's probably not going to be over by Christmas, but the immediate kind of danger has passed. And so people well, can... so they think. <laughs> anyway, all right, things wear on a little bit. We get into spring 1915, uh, and all of a sudden in April, we get the Spiritualist magazine, uh, which is a British publication. You can guess sort of where they're going uh, with this. But all of a sudden, they start publishing uh, stories of soldiers who have had visions of a, of a supernatural force that guided them away from the trouble. Uh, on the canal line, some miraculous intervention, and there's quite a few sort of similar accounts, mostly of an unnamed British officer who tells the story of seeing some sort of oh, it could be could be longbow archers, it could be St George, but it's often angels, like an angel or an angelic figure, uh, and through May. Uh, 1915 this really kicks on and people start telling the story and anyone with a bit of faith kind of loves it because they've heard what rotten bastards the germans were as well especially because i mean may may 1915 is a particularly bad pr month for the germans i mean it's bad enough sort of august 1914 with the kind of burning of um rape of belgium yeah killing babies sticking them on spikes and all that sort of stuff um then they get to drowning babies with the Lusitania. Indeed. Well, they sink the Lusitania. Before that, they have the first. They launch the first poison gas attack uh, of the war on the Western Front. That's that's April. Um, so rotten, rotten uh, German, beastly, um, dastardly, and frightful Hun. It's where the term Hun is emerging as well. Yeah, we've also got Zeppelin attacks on on England coming over. The first one of them on London is in May, but there's there's attacks on East Anglian towns before that as well. So um, so we're anyone with a bit of faith would be very keen on some sort of biblical figure intervening uh, against the rotten old Germans. And to be honest, I think the authorities are pretty happy to have something distracting them from the fact we're running out of shells on the Western Front and the Gallipoli landings haven't gone well. But, and the um, government's collapsing. Yeah, indeed. So there's going to be sackings and, and trouble there too. So happy enough for this to, to, to propagate, but it's in church sermons, it's in articles, and this kicks on and rumbles on the through. And anyone who denies it is seen as being unpatriotic and a, and a rotter themselves. Um, so imagine what it's like when poor old Arthur Machen, who'd written the Bowman story, um, tries to get it published along with a big forward saying, I made it up, which he did. He, he tries to launch a, you know, a kind of, look, I, I, just, I just made this story up. It's not true. Please put this ball down and stop running with it. It turns into a bestseller and everyone loves it. Everyone loves the story. It completely backfires. So that's kind of it, really. That's the story. I mean, the, 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 there's not many real people that give it any kind of credence. There's one senior officer who... Um, uh, you know, scholars of the First World War will know him. John Charters, um, who was uh, at GHQ. Um, well, I mean, he's he's Hague's intelligence officer for the Battle of Passchendaele, so you can probably yeah, yeah. fantasy land for quite a long time. But, um, commas, yeah. 
Yeah, um, but he wrote a, a little bit in his memoir. Uh, an angel of the Lord, clad in white raiment, bearing a flaming sword, appeared before the German forces at Mons' uh, battle, uh, forbidding their advance. Um, what a load of old tosh. It was, but then the Germans started this whole god off in the beginning, didn't they? Because they had it on their belt buckles, didn't they? Yeah, they've got mittens. Yep. Oh, yeah, um, got mittens. So everyone's sort of trying to claim, by like the same way that people are trying to claim the Americans for their side, trying to claim God for their side as well. Although, kind of still want to believe that this is real. Kind of like the idea of all these ghostly archers on the battlefield. Yeah. Beating up some Germans. Why not? I like it. I think it's endearing. Like you say, it's it's absolute nonsense, obviously. <laughs> but uh, endearing nonsense. Uh. Yeah, I don't, I don't really have any problem with it. I mean, anyone who sat there and thought, oh, this sounds like a historically accurate bit of folklore and, uh, like, charters, <laughs> well, <I> mean, <laughs> you could worry were, about them. The, the only kind of blokes who came back saying, oh, yeah, I mean, I, I had a, you know, um, a, a vision of something. Uh, it was often, like, um, cavalry they saw trotting around, um, either, you know, threatening them or protecting them or something like that. But they, bear, bear in mind, these are blokes marching in full kit in, at the height of summer, not enough water, not enough sleep. I can, I can imagine a hallucination or two, you know. Also, there's a fair amount of French cavalry who look like they've stepped out of the Napoleonic era riding around <laughs> on the Western Front as well with their fucking breastplates. Sure, the Ashen Corps Bowman would have shot them, though. I mean, like... Yeah. <laughs> right, okay, I like that one. I think it's a sweet and endearing bit of anti-German propaganda. Uh, Beth, you ready? Uh, literally, I'm, I've, I've got two. They're both really short, but I can't, I can't decide which one. both. Okay, they're both local ones, um, so it's my area in the Black Country. Um, so I'll go with I'll go with the first. I'll go with the, the shortest one, which is from my actual town. Um, it's about a lady called Old Molly Mug, and she was accused of being a witch um, in the seventeenth century, and she had everyone if you'll pardon the pun, under her spell. They were completely terrified of her. Um, she, it was believed that because she was in league with the devil, that when she died, she would return as a black cat within one week of her death. So to kind of put this to rest, put this to, to sleep, basically, she offered the local doctor a valuable ring that would be she would wear when she was buried. Um, and then after the week had passed, he would dig, have her dug up, the coffin opened, and if she was still there, he could have the ring. Um, so powerful was her reputation that when she did actually die, the local people, the townspeople, didn't want her buried in consecrated ground at the church at St Giles. Um, they wouldn't allow her to be buried there. So she was buried down at the bottom of the hill from where I live, at the bottom of Pouk Lane, which was in an old murderer's graveyard, which is actually now the the, the actual cemetery for the town is that's where that's come about they then left her for a week um but there, there were lots of attempts they had to like have people watch over her grave because there were lots of body snatchers who wanted to try and claim this ring eventually they dug her up as as per her request to get this ring and the men who were tasked with digging her up were in a state of shock apparent like there were completely overwhelmed, screaming, wailing, because they opened the coffin 
and there was nothing there. Oh, it, was da, da, da. it was empty. So, no one knows what happened to that. Obviously, she probably didn't die. She probably it was probably some elaborate. Um, Time the body snatching. Maybe, who knows? We don't know. But the town people were scared enough of her, and it just perpetuated the myth that she was a witch instead. Too right. But yeah. If I was there, I'd have hung around afterwards as well, just fucking with them. Yeah. Why not? Um, the second one is I went a little bit down the same route as Clive actually um, with saints. Um, the Saint Kenelm, which is uh, quite well known in, in this particular area near Tales Owen. Just seen Clive uh, died for his died for his butler's lives of saints then to have a look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um he Kenelm was actually a child of seven years old. Um his father died and his father was the king um Kenwolf of Mercia. Um had two older daughters and then Kenelm, who he had chosen to succeed him, and the oldest daughter was completely furious that Canelm had been picked over her. And she thought that if he might happen upon some tragic accident, that she would name, she would reign as queen instead. So she conspired with her lover, Ascaberth, who was also her brother's, not just her brother's tutor, was Canelm's tutor, but also his guardian as well, gave Ascaberth money saying, slay my brother for me that I might reign. So they went... Ascaberth and Canelm went on a hunting trip in the forests of Worcestershire, in the Clent Hills, as it is today. Um, and he had, a, he had a dream. This, this seven-year-old was a particularly uh, sentient being, I think. He had a dream the night before the trip in which he'd climbed a large tree decorated with flowers and lanterns. And from on high, he saw all four quarters of his kingdom. Three of court, the quarters bowed down before him, but the fourth began to chop away at the tree until it fell. Then Canelm himself transformed into a white bird and flew away to safety. On waking, he related to his dream to his nanny, who was, of course, a wise old woman who was skilled in interpreting dreams, of course. Um, and she started crying because she knew that it meant that the boy was destined to die. Um, so in the middle of the first day of the hunt, Canelm fell asleep. He decided to have a rest. It was a long, hot day. Ascobert started digging a grave almost next to the to the child canal in preparation for him being killed the boy woke up and then admonished him you think to kill me here in vain for i shall be slain in another spot in token thereof see this rod blossom and he struck the stick that he'd been carrying into the ground and it of course instantly took root and began to flower and grew over many years into a great ash tree which became known as saint canal's ash um he then said he just wasn't completely unfazed by this turn of events so they then left they continued on their trip together after you know he'd seen him try to dig his own grave canelm still let Ascobert come on this trip with him they went up further into the clent hills um and the canelm started to sing a, a hymn um and then Ascobert came up behind him chopped his head clean off and buried him where he fell and then Canelm's soul, because it was so pure, being a young child, rose to the sky in the form of a dove, carrying a scroll, and flew away to Rome, where it dropped the scroll at the feet of the Pope, who then sent anyone and God's dog to go and find the remains of this St. Canelm, which they apparently did. And then there's another story in that as well, where people fought over the remains and 
there was a story about they decide which either send them to Gloucester or to Worcester depending on um they both came across the body um and they couldn't decide where it would go and they decided that they would fall asleep overnight and the first person to wake up whichever group of people they were from that's where the body would go you know i i'm still this is a mark of my childishness i'm still trying not to snigger at the look at my rod blossom bit (laughs) about halfway back in the story kit was on the same wavelength as me i saw his face uh watch thy rod blossom hmm little boy yeah i i prefer the vengeful witch out of the two of them yeah she's definitely more fun I like that they wanted to send the body to the places that the Americans would find hardest to pronounce in years to come. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. Oh, it's just like in your head, what's more offest- offensive? We send to Glossin that. Fuck that, Worcester. That'll really or also a black country saying, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Shut up, James. <laughs> um, right. Mm. Alina. He's done all of five minutes preparation. What have you got for us? You got some mad Polish shit? I've got some mad Polish Actually, to be fair, I looked this up with James last night and then forgot about it. Um, (laughs) And I've only (laughs) only done it now. So, right. So going with no saints here, by the way. No saints here. Just some totally fucked up shit. Are you ready to how fucked up this shit is going to be? Charlotte's nodding her head. Right, so we're I'm going really back. excited. Come on, bring it on, bring it on. <laughs> so, because I bet one of you lot's going to want to dress up like this for Halloween. Probably Kit. <laughs> <laughs> no, Kit, Kit's already got his severed head. I, I buy story. one creepy giant doll head, and everyone judges me. <laughs> we're not judging. In the name we're just of science, enjoying it. You bought it as well. <laughs> right. So this is going to be Kit's next Halloween costume. Right. So we're going to go back to the Middle Ages. And we're going to talk about Morowa Dziewica, which is called in English, because I'm not going to make you all pronounce this in Polish, is the plague maiden. So before a plague came into a city, she would fly around at night. And basically, she was a skinny, skinny, yeah, people skinny. This your don't trust skinny people theory again. No, this is I wish I was a skinny person. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, she was decaying as well. I don't think I want to be decaying so much. And she was skeletal, and she used to be covered in a white cloth, and she'd wave a bloody handkerchief. And just so you all know, she is a virgin. She's a virgin, did you say? You got cut off then. Yeah, she is a virgin. Is that not telling you something? But that she needs to get out more. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) I think think this might actually help her. Um, But anyway, so she had this very specific um, eau de toilette, uh, of death <laughs> and she would jump on men's necks and order them to flaunt around the villages so wherever she would go people were ill and they died the streets were just filled with piles, piles and piles of bodies people would loot and commit arson and just go completely crazy the sick started infecting the healthy and they'd start to murder their family members even their very own children but what we're going to do we're going to go to something quite specific so it's a Polish bedtime story. No, but it's <laughs> okay. still a frigging folklore, scary. And I think, well, to be fair, I think it, it was it was it came out during the Black Death, okay, and it was fair. a way for people to cope with the idea of the Black Death. I mean, I'm kind of like bigging it up here just to make it far more exciting than what it actually is. Okay. But um, <laughs> you know, it's it's 
yeah, it's quite it's quite horrific to like to, uh, to explain all the shit. Anyway, so let's get to the village of Quinta. So after fighting the Swedes, um, there was a lot of death in the village, um, like there was throughout the whole of Poland. And the scent was just something she needed to have. It was her perfume for the Morovita Jivita. So her time had come to come to this village and to release a black death. Plants would wither, animals would flee, and the birds would fall silent. There is no escape. The town authorities told the inhabitants that no one can leave and no one can enter. Basically a lockdown, pretty much. Um, God, I'm still feeling a bit like COVID at the moment. Um, <clears throat> so she entered the village. Nothing could stop her. However, a strange man arrives. No, it's not Kit. <laughs> <laughs> Was he bursting a latex head? I don't Kit, sorry, you're on my, you're, uh, I mean, I could just start on Lockie if you prefer. Nod away if you want me to start on Lockie, I can do that. Lockie can be, the, Lockie can be our strange man. Okay, so Lockie, our strange man, arrives. The villagers are very distrustful. What are we going to do? But he offers to help the town and he's going to banish this woman and this disease. So he ordered them to dig a large hollow in the linden next to the church and to have some sort of like a plug thing. So he cast a magic spell and he trapped her in this tree and he plugged it and the disease magically disappeared. There we go. Just, <laughs> Sounds like I kicked ass there. I mean... I've just... what Now, there was like there was a hole and then there was a plug thing, to quote you, and then this yeah. was over. I don't get it. Well, he cast a spell to get rid right. of her and then she got trapped in the tree. So what was the hole for? To plug her in. But then why, why, is she in the <laughs> why is she in why do they need the tree if she's in the hole and vice versa because that's to close it can you guys stop Alex Polish folklore some of the stuff she told me last night uh yeah like the, what is it the ghost full of blood or something I think that's the one you was originally going to go with yeah this, this is weird shit so I picked the weirdest one out Five says, plugged it in, no more virgin. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, have you not seen, have you not seen Fangully? Uh, no, it's a cartoon. You are all right? rubbish. Gully, <laughs> they trap the demon in the tree? No? Anyone? I just want to know why Lockie dug a hole then. <laughs> in the tree to trap her in the tree in fairness this is basic the, the witcher games are based on a polish novel and this is in one of the games this is the plot of one of the missions you do thanks kit i think there kit's you your guy um I don't, yeah lucky's like don't get me i, I think there's something <laughs> similar in kingdom come deliverance as well yeah can't just think of it elena yeah <laughs> are there any happy polish stories when is Poland ever happy? When you have like a hide the pig on Christmas Eve. <laughs> that a euphemism. That is like a game of like of like find the pig. Still a euphemism. Um, we it don't is a euphemism if you're David. F Cameron. Find whoever's raiding the buffet table after midnight. I guess. <laughs> is that a euphemism? <laughs> oh my god! There's nothing to do. We don't eat meat on uh, Christmas Eve. So why are you chasing a pig? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't know this kit. Have you, did you drain the shit up? No, no. There's something to do with like a flying pig or something. 
And like people, flying like the kids try and find like this picture of a flying. Maybe, maybe it's Czech Republic. I get them confused quite a lot. Uh, are you sure you're not confusing it with the Hogfather from Terry Pratchett? <laughs> I really hope not. I'm going to shut up. I'm not Polish. <laughs> you, you know better than I do. Unless, <laughs> unless it's on to your bit of folklore. Because yours is awesome. Kit, you've gone east, haven't you? I have gone about as far east as you can go. Um, I have gone to Japan and the king of all crazy folklore. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. They are bonkers, to be fair, the Japanese. They are. Shall I unleash my bonkersness on you all? Do it. Right, uh, so I've gone for the epic, bizarre, utterly unique world of Japanese folklore and the yokai tradition. And yokai are basically spirit demons. And if you've seen uh, any sort of cartoon movie from Japan, you've probably seen them. My Neighbor Totoro, Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away, they're all yokai. Uh, Particularly common are kitsune, they're fox spirits, and tanuki, which are always depicted as having giant, swollen, magical scrotums um, for reasons that are uniquely (laughs) Japanese. Feel free to Google in your own time. Anyway, yukai come in, in shapes and sizes. Some are benevolent, some are evil, some are just, just fucking weird. Uh, you have, for example, Mr. Beto Beto-san. Um, he likes to make the sound of footsteps behind people when they're walking home at night, uh, a few meters behind them. Uh, he doesn't do anything else. He just basically stalks people and terrifies them. And you can get him to move on by politely stepping to one side and saying, after you, Mr. Beto Beto-san, at which point he fucks off. Then you have the kitsune. The fox spirits that I mentioned, uh, they're often seen as tricksters and they appear all the way through Japanese folklore. Sometimes they attack, other times they turn into beautiful women and become devoted wives. Um, seeing a fox with its tail of flame is a terrible omen, though. It means a bad harvest. And during World War II, the American OSS decided this was the perfect chance for psyops. They launched something called Operation Fantasia. And the plan was that if Japanese were, Japan was invaded, they were going to drop fox-shaped balloons over the countryside, glow-in-the-dark fox-shaped balloons, hoping to scare the shit out of the locals and make them feel, quote, fear, terror, and despair. Unfortunately, fox balloons aren't that easy to manage. So by 1944, Operation Fantasia had evolved to use actual foxes that would be slathered in luminous paint and released into the Japanese countryside. They would be accompanied with pamphlets from fake Japanese soothsayers predicting calamity. And the foxes would be followed up by agents equipped with fucking slide whistles that make 
noises to pretend to be zombies pretend, possessed by foxes. Um, to test if this would work, they even ran a test operation. They painted 30 foxes in glow-in-the-dark paint and let them loose in Central Park, New York, to see what would happen. The result was apparently New Yorkers running away with the screaming genies, to quote the, uh, the, the, the assessment, uh, which just encouraged the US to do this all the more. Of course, the atomic bomb was dropped, Japan was never invaded, and, it, and so Operation Fantasia never happened. But the, the best, the best yokai story is the Ashiyari Yashiki. Um, this was an event that was said to have occurred during the Edo period. Uh, that's between the Battle of Sekigahara, in 1603 and the restoration uh, in 1868 during the Tokugawa shogunate and it occurred in Sumida uh, which is now in Tokyo it's just east of the river where the the museum of Tokyo is history museum um, and it's so famous that it became one of the seven wonders of Honjo uh, and believe me the the Honjo wonders are fantastic and they include I am not making this up the leave it and get out of here canal I don't know what that is. Didn't look that far. Anyway, the story goes: there was a guy living living in his fabulous, fantastic Japanese um, manor house. He was a Hatamoto of the daimyo, one of his top uh, men. His name was Aji no Kinosuke, and he was just chilling in his mansion one day when a booming voice echoed through the halls: "Wash my foot." <laughs> At which point, a giant disembodied foot, many times larger than a man, crashes through the roof of his house, covered in shit. Immediately, the terrified maids rush to this giant foot and begin scrubbing it, scrubbing and scrubbing it until it's clean. Satisfied, the giant disembodied foot leaps out of the building, out of the roof, and vanishes. But we're not done there. Because no sooner had the Samara repaired his roof than the voice returned. Wash my foot! <laughs> Again, this giant fush appears, it covered in crap, it gets washed, it fucks off. And this happens again and again, and eventually the Samurai's had it. He is so sick, he orders his servants not to wash the giant demon foot. <laughs> And unsurprisingly, the foot arrives, wash my foot! Boom, comes in, and it kicks off when no one will wash it. I mean, literally, it's kicking off. It flies around, smashing the shit out of his house. So the Hatamoto, he does what any self-respecting samurai would do. He goes to the local knock-up shop to get pissed with his mates. And he tells his mates that he's, got this, he's being plagued by this giant disembodied foot. They all think it's hilarious. And one of them is so keen to see it, he offers to swap houses with the guy. They do so, but the giant foot never appears again. Um, the idea being that apparently uh, an unwashed foot is something to do with sort of criminal behavior. So it's kind of casting shade on this guy. Even so, the legend of the um, Ashirai Yashiki, the foot washing manner, uh, still lingers in Japan to this day. There you I, go. I just... <laughs> that was a gift. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we all just yeah, it's like all those films where you sat and watched and thought, how did this shit get made? Like, <laughs> someone wrote that. Jeez, is there a cartoon of that? There must be. There are there are pictures. There are there are Japanese sort of illustrations. This is quite a famous story. I will send a picture to the group so you can have a look. 
Awesome. I'm going to mm. break before we go to Dorman because I'm expecting big things from Irish folklore to round us off. But I'm going to bring you tales first of when vaginas roamed the earth, quite literally, on their own, like disembodied. And then I'm going to tell you proper, like documentary style, why they stopped. So, right, the natives of Hawaii have a goddess called Lele, right? That roughly translated means capo with the travelling vagina. Obviously. Her flying vagina was her superpower, and she used it to save lives, people. So one folk story tells about the day her sister was being assaulted by a half-man, half-hog fertility god. Capo rushes to the rescue the only way she knows how. She lifts, her, she lifts her hula skirt with one hand, grabs her crotch with the other, detaches her vagina and sends it to the rescue. Her winged vagina goes past the, the fertility god, who was so excited that he started chasing after it, followed it all the way to the edge of Hawaii, where it landed and left an imprint, a crater that they called Koilepelpe, and believed it was the imprint of her flying vagina. But if you're wondering why, if women had the gift of letting their vaginas go and wander about, why they gave it up, the answer comes from Brazil. So the Hawaiians believe that one goddess had a flying vagina, but the Mehinaku of Brazil believed that in ancient times, in inverted commas, all the women's vaginas used to wander about. And the legend tells the story of Tukui, whose vagina was especially foolish. That's their words, not mine. While she slept, it would crawl about the floor of the house looking for food. One day, though, it was clanging around inside a pot of porridge so loudly that it woke a man up. He came out, torch in hand, to see what was making that racket. And as he peered into the pot of porridge, he brought his torch too close and accidentally burned the vagina sending it scurrying back to where it belonged, in between her legs. The next day, she called all the women in town together and said, look, we need to pack this in. We need to stop the vaginas wandering around with a life of their own. They may get burnt. You may all get burnt like mine were. And that's why, Beth, Charlotte, Alina, your vagina does not detach itself at night and go looking for food. Thank God. <laughs> mine didn't get that memo. Sorry, what? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> from South America to the Hawaiian Islands, everyone's obsessed with wandering vaginas. I just, how does this take like flight? Obviously, with the flying vagina. <laughs> Lockie looks petrified. <laughs> <laughs> I just like the idea that it was this looking is my for food. Face. Yeah, kind kind of like when Bertie goes looking for cat biscuits in the middle of the night. It was it wander off. Uh, wow. Yeah. Anyway, Dorman, top that. Top flying uh, vaginas with your Irish nonsense. I will. <laughs> He's rubbing his hands with glee. Right. So, um, this. I mean, Ireland, Irish folklore is fucking amazing at the best of times. Um, you've got Fionn McCool and the Salmon of Knowledge, where a fish tells someone the secrets of the universe. Um, you've got the Fianna, who are basically the Irish Avengers. Um, Ocean and Tiernan Og, where a guy goes to heaven and then comes back. And then the Children of Lear, where people turn into swans. It's amazing stuff. But this guy's story is, I suppose, a nice primer. It's the quintessential Irish myth. I also vastly 
uh, underestimated how long it was, so this could take a while. So strap in. Um, <laughs> this is also I've once seen him described by um, a comedian who described him as the original fuckboy. Um, make your own judgment. <laughs> Um, as the story unwinds itself, but there may be merit to that. Uh, this is the story of Ku Cullen, or Satanta. So he was born called <clears throat> Satanta, allegedly the son of a god. And at a very young age, probably about five or six, he is enlisted in a youth soldier training program or band in uh, Awan Maka after, seeing, after being seen beating up loads of children very effectively. Um, because when he went into battle or when he got angry, he basically hulked out and transformed himself into this um, brutal killing machine. So this small child is very impressive on the battlefield and he's invited to the hall of a local smith called Cullum. Now, Satanta shows up late because he's a child and he was busy playing hurling and Cullum forgets about him. So he unleashes a vicious dog to defend his castle. And Satanta walks up armed with only a hurl and a schlitter now, for those of you not familiar with the sport of hurling, a hurl is like a hockey stick that's flat at the top and a schlitter is kind of like a baseball. Um, so the hound charges at Satanta and Satanta fires the ball down the throat of the hound with his hurl, slaying it instantly. Um, now, Cullen, big fan of dogs, is devastated that his guard dog has been killed. So Satanta, at the age of six, volunteers himself to be his guard dog until another dog can be raised to guard his house. So he changes his name from the from Satanta to the Hound of Cullen, or Ku Cullen. So, when Ku Cullen is seven, he overhears his sort of trainer, I guess his Mr. Miyagi, a druid called Kafbach, teaching pupils at Owen Maka, and he says that any pupil who takes arms and enlists in the army that day would have everlasting fame. So, <laughs> he immediately jumps up and runs off to the king and joins the army. Unfortunately, had he stayed to the end of the lecture, he would have heard that anyone who does this would die young. <laughs> now, he, unfortunately, he missed that bit, and the druid was devastated that he's just sent off his best and brightest fighter and pupil to do this. But he then uses this as an excuse to be a bit of a dick. So knowing that he's going to die young anyway, he just starts going mad. He demands a chariot from the king of Ulster, and sets off to kill the th sons of Nectan, who had boasted they had killed more Ulstermen than were currently living in Ulster at that time. So these are considerably bad dudes. They've got their own sagas. Cuchulain turns up, goes completely berserk, kills them. He returns back to Ulster, still in his battle frenzy. Uh, so they need to calm him down. So all the women of Ulster are rallied by the queen, and they walk out and bare their breasts to him to calm him down. But Cuchulain, <laughs> being cunning, looks away. Um, then all the men of Ulster grab him to the ground and throw a, bottle of, a, a barrel of water over him, which immediately explodes from the heat of his body. Then they pour a second one on him, which boils, and then a third one, which warms, and I quote, to a pleasant temperature. So that manages to calm him down. As I said, still a teenager at this point. Now he decides that um, he wants to get married because he's young, virile, and knows he's going to die young. So he has his heart set on a woman called Emer. Uh, Emer is the daughter of a man called Forgel, and Forgel hates Kukulin because he's heard the stories and knows he's a bit of a fuckboy. So he sends Kukulin off to train in Scotland with a warrior woman called Skahach, uh, which is kind of like sending your arch nemesis to do training in the SAS. 
because anyone who trains with her turns into this fantastic soldier, but there's a very high chance of death. So that's kind of the gamble he's taking. Now, this obviously doesn't pay off, and Cúchulain begins to turn into the finest warrior in Ireland. He's gifted a spear called Gael Bulg, which, if you throw it at someone, sticks in them and can only be cut out of them. It's basically an instant kill, which is kind of cheating, but he's also a really good fighter anyway. Uh, there he meets his best friend, a man called Ferdiad, who would possible lover as well, we're not sure, but there's more on Ferdiad later, so put that name in the back of the head. While in Scotland, he becomes embroiled with a local conflict with Scahawk, the sort of person she, he's training under. Her evil twin sister, Aoife, um, and Scahawk are in a feud, so Cúchulain gets involved. Scahawk knows how bad a person Aoife is, so she gives Cúchulain a sleeping potion. Cúchulain, being far too virile and young for that, uh, wakes up after only an hour, rides off to battle, and attacks Aoife in a duel. Uh, he starts to get his ass kicked. So he does something which, in hindsight, is less badass and kind of lame. He points over Aoife's shoulder and says, oh my god, your chariot just fell off a cliff. And she loves her chariot and her horses, so she turns around, and Cúchulain then tackles her to the ground. Uh, Aoife surrenders, but only if Cúchulain has a son with her. That was the terms of the negotiation. Um, so he does this and then like a true fuckboy, abandons her and goes back to Ireland to pursue Aoife or Emer rather. There's a lot of women in the story and they've all got names that sound vaguely similar. So Cúchulain comes back to Ireland, fully trained by this in, in like the newest fighting styles of Scotland. He storms Fergal's palace, kills 24 of his bodyguards, abducts his daughter and Fergal in a terror throws himself off the roof of the castle. That's the end of him. Now, meanwhile, in Scotland, Aoife has not been idle. She has been raising Cúchulain's son to be a machine specifically for destroying Cúchulain. Boom, too right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Conla, as, as he was called, arrives in Ireland, ready to go, challenges Cúchulain to a duel. He doesn't know that he is Cúchulain's son and Cúchulain doesn't really know who he is. And he refuses to identify himself. He just insists on fighting Cúchulain. Cúchulain, being incredibly cocky, says, no problem at all. Let's, let's be having you. And then he sort of starts to get his ass kicked. Uh, Conla does, in fact, have the killing shot on him. But at that point, Cúchulain realizes, this is my son. He cries out. Conla misses the shot. Then Cúchulain throws his spear of cheating at him and kills him instantly. Uh, and then goes into mourning for probably a few days because it's Cúchulain. Um, going to skip over some bits here. I'm conscious of time. But at one stage, he rescues a Scandinavian princess from some tribal weirdos. She then comes to Ireland to fall in love with him because he's Cúchulain. Um, he doesn't recognize her and kills her with a slingstone by accident, realizes his mistake, then brings her back from the dead by sucking the stone out from her side with his mouth. Um, obviously, medical practice was pretty advanced back then. Uh, <laughs> so she, because he has tasted her blood, they can't marry. So instead, they, uh, she hitches up with someone else who... Then she's murdered by the women of Ulster because she's too pretty. And then Cullen drops or collapses a house with 150 of women of Ulster in it. Um, Does he bang them first? Almost certainly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's only one woman that his wife, Emer, is ever jealous of. But I'm actually going to skip that because it's a bit complicated and there's a lot of fathers and shit and I can't pronounce most of it. Um, <laughs> then comes his biggest success on the battlefield, which is called the Cattle Raid of Cooley, uh, where Queen Maeve, who anyone who's a fan of the boys, that's where that character comes from, 
uh, Queen Maeve, who's the Queen of Connacht, rocks up to Ulster wanting to steal uh, a particularly virile stud bull from Ulster. Uh, Cú Cullen was too busy having sex with someone, so the, the army just marches in. And then Maeve uh, curses the men of Ulster with an incredibly badass curse. She curses them all with birthing pains, or the equivalent thereof. So they're all, the entire army is wiped out. Um, they're incapable of doing anything. So the army of Connacht just marches in. Cucullan finally gets his act together, gets out of bed, and stands at a ford and evokes trial by combat. So he's willing to take on anyone one by one. And by doing this, he holds up the army for weeks because anytime a champion steps forward, he defeats them. And that includes the goddess of war, Morrigan. So he's, he's doing a good job. Um, then, you might remember way back at the start of the story, he had joined these like Boy Scout army uh, child soldier group. They turn up and decide to help. So all these young teenagers of Ulster charge at uh, the Connacht army and get themselves slaughtered. This sends Cucullin into such a berserk rage that he attacks the army on his own and kills hundreds of them before finally being pushed back into the river where he calms down. So they realize that we've reached a point, we need to deal with Cucullin. Uh, the curse can only last for so long on the army of Ulster, so they send in his best friend, Ferdiad. Uh, Ferdiad steps forward, um, and they fight for three days. Unfortunately, Ferdiad is killed again with the spear that kills people instantly, and Cucullin has, uh, goes into mourning, but thankfully, he's defended long enough that the curse is lifted on the Ulstermen, and they drive Maeve back to Connacht. Now, apparently, the only reason that Maeve was defeated that day was she was smitten with her period, uh, the day that oh, the, the curse lift or fell, rather. So she had to be escorted back, and Cucullin actually escorts her because he doesn't think killing someone in that state is honorable. Um, Maeve isn't done yet. She comes up with a plan to weaken Cucullin by manipulating the various oaths he had made in his life. So he ends up eating dog meat, which turns off some of his magical powers or something like that. It's quite confused. And she hires this guy, he's just a bastard in the mythology called Lugud, to forge three spears. And Lugud forges these three spears. The first kills Cucullin's chariot driver and best friend, Laeg, the king of the charioteers. The second kills Cucullin's horse, the king of horses. And the third hits Cucullin and mortally wounds him. Cucullin, knowing he's dying, ties himself to a standing stone still, and then fights off anyone who comes near him. And only then, when a raven lands on his shoulder, did the enemy army realize he is in fact dead, and they approach him. Uh, Lugud approaches, uh, cuts off his head, but when he does, Cucullin's sword falls from his hand and cuts off Lugud's sword hand. So even, the, even in death, he still strikes his vengeance. Um, he, Cucullin allegedly died in AD 1. I'm not saying it's the most, that's the reason why the calendar changed, but <laughs> it's up there. Uh, yeah, he's just, and I've left a lot out. It is a fantastic epic tale <laughs> and it's only a, a small sample of the shit that comes out of Irish mythology. It is unbelievably good. And there's a car park named after him in the centre of Dublin city centre. So. Oh, boom. I did, you know what, right? So I'll just, judging this now, I kind of wanted to give it to Kit's big ranty foot, but I just feel like winning today. Is it Maeve that smite down an entire army by giving them labour pains? Queen Maeve is an absolute badass. In this. <laughs> she destroyed an entire army by just making them have labour pains. No blood, no death, no despair, just a little bit of labour, and they're all fucked. Yeah, exactly. No, she, she, she does... Um, 
there's a she's a there's apparently she was inspired the fairy queen in Romeo and Juliet among other things as well uh but she is supposed to have existed but obviously a lot of it is exaggerated and loads of her children were really important as well but she in herself could be a, a candidate she's incredible my next question is what the fuck were people drinking or smoking in Ireland to come up with this stuff well drinking whiskey um <laughs> or putching <laughs> and yeah there wasn't much to do <laughs> i mean you're deeply christian but you need some fun as well <laughs> i like do you know what i think queen mave wins the day for me um but you'll notice and you'll notice that she her fucking pen was on fire while you were talking there doorman but charlotte has finally found a reason tonight to vindicate the amount of money she spent getting her degree why is that charlotte I have. Well, I'm, I'm not very bright, you see. I thought, well, rather than go to university and study history, which might be a useful thing, I'm going to go and study film because I'm going to be a huge Hollywood producer and I'm going to work with Harvey Weinstein. That was <laughs> the plan. Thankfully, it didn't work out. Um, but as a result of my very expensive degree, uh, everyone's pulling those faces. It's like, Ooh, yeah, I know. What a horrendous human. Um, I thought I'd use my expensive degree tonight. So when you said we're going to talk about folklore, of course, my first thought was we're going to talk about Taylor Swift's banging new album. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was very excited. I was, I was really up for that. Um, <laughs> Brian and I are the only two in the room going, nah, fuck that. Nah, sorry, guys. <laughs> it, is, it is a banger. You should listen to it. Um, so I thought I would talk to you about folklore and about fairy tales and take you back to, we're going to go to Russia and we're going to meet a guy called Vladimir Prop. Now, any any media or film students who are tuning in will know about Prop. Now, he was born in 1895 in St. Petersburg to German parents, I found out, which is, it's like being Russian and moving here and calling your kid Dave, isn't it? Yeah. Like being German and moving to Russia and calling your kid Vlad, that's, that's just wicked. Um, so... He, he grew up in St. Petersburg. He went to the university there and he studied philology. Um, not the study of phils, but it's the study of um, language, but specifically in oral and written histories. And he used his fabulous education to write a book called Morphology of the Folktale. That was first published in 1928, but it didn't really, you know, take off in a big way over here until it was translated. And it wasn't translated until 1958, when it basically became standard text for every film student ever. Um, and what Prop did is he studied a hundred Russian fairy tales and identified 31 narrative functions which typically occur in all fairy tales and folklore as well as seven character types now this is slightly flawed because obviously it is specifically based on russian fairy tales but it is it's so incredibly on the nose that you can you can take a look at it and you can look at any any film any story and you can make it fit so, for example, let's have a look at the character types because there's only seven. I'm not going to do all the 31 narrative structures, I promise. We'll be here all night. Um, but in any story, in any folktale, you're going to have the following seven characters. You need a villain, 
most importantly of all. Um, they are our evil character who is going to struggle with our hero. We're going to have a dispatcher. The dispatcher is a character who is going to illustrate the need for the hero's quest and kind of send him on his way. There'll be a helper. And the helper is typically a magical entity who comes to help the hero and helps them achieve their quest. What is their quest? Well, the fourth character type is a princess or a prize. So a princess can either be a person or a thing. It's basically something that's desired but unattainable um, due to some evil injustice, uh, possibly the work of the villain. And the hero's journey often ends when he acquires this thing or marries it, basically. The fifth type is the donor, and that's a character who prepares the hero for their quest and gives them perhaps some magical object, something that they can use on the way, but only after testing him. We have our hero. Of course, we need a hero for a story. This is the character who's going to react to all of the, the things happening around him, all of the dispatcher's information, all of the donor's information. The hero will defeat the villain, ideally, um, resolve any wrongdoing and marry the princess. Sounds good. And then our seventh character is actually a double character, and that's our false hero or our false villain. So it's either someone who's going to take credit for all of the good stuff that the hero does, but actually being bad, or someone who's going to appear to be hindering our hero's pro progress, but actually help him out. So to show you that this works, because we were chatting about this on our little private group, and I know that we're, we're a bunch of nerds, right? We're, we're all, all good with that. Um, I thought I would show you how those seven characters fit into Star Wars A New Hope. Okay, so for, for all of us old people, that's the first Star Wars film. So we open up with Luke Skywalker. He's our hero. He's going to buy R2-D2, who's our dispatcher, because he actually carries the message and sends him on a mission to help Leia, the princess, a very obvious version of that. He needs to go and find Obi-Wan Kenobi, who's going to be our donor. Obi-Wan's going to introduce Luke to the Force and give him his magical lightsaber, the weapon of the Jedi. They'll all employ Han Solo. Now, he's, he's an interesting one because he's both a helper and also in a way, a bit of a false villain at the start. You think he might be a bit of a liability, but he turns out to be a good thing. They've also got more helpers in the shape of C-3PO. We've got Chewbacca. You know, they're all helping our hero get to the end to rescue Leia from Darth Vader, who is our villain. Now, of course, we can go on to all the other films and all the mythology and talk about how those change around, but that's not what we're here for. Prop also identified these 31 narrative functions. And the interesting thing about these is that they don't all necessarily appear in every single fairy tale or folklore story or anything that we get. But where they do appear, they always appear in the same order. So they go from 1 to 31, and you will always find that those are going to happen in the order that Prop lays out. It's really clever. So... I've been scribbling away, Alex. Okay, you've been rating everyone. I've been scribbling away. I've had so much fun and I have loved listening to the stories that, um, that everyone's been telling in the pub tonight. Um, and I was looking at the narrative functions and thinking, you guys, you just, you're just a gift to me. So 
let's start let's have a look at saint sebastian clive saint sebastian he he's a christian and he goes to join the praetorian guard that is function number one it's called absentation and it's where our hero is going to leave the security of their home we need that thing to happen first hero's got to go off into some danger he's going to become the head of the praetorian guard that's pretty that's pretty awesome so this is uh, function 13 our hero's reaction um he's going to withstand the rigors of a test and you know do well out of that um he converts the prisoners that's awesome but then our evil villain our emperor finds out that he is a christian and we get the struggle which is function number 16 where the hero and villain meet and engage and they um they meet directly and they fight um he's sentenced to death bad form shot with arrows that's function number 17 branding um the hero is marked in some manner um this also works in in our star wars thing you think about when luke skywalker has his hand cut off after fighting with darth vader it's exactly the same functions that are happening um he doesn't die that's really cool. St. Irene comes and looks after him. That's function number 19. It's, um, it's known as liquidation, and it's when the misfortunes or issues earlier in the story are resolved. So she has cured him. That's been resolved. Then he goes off and accosts the emperor. That's function number 21, pursuit. Um, and he's going to pursue him, and the, the emperor orders for St. Sebastian to be killed. Function number 25, a difficult task. Um, and he's going to die. So death isn't actually in here because, of course, it doesn't happen in every single story. And all of your stories have hit the narrative functions, not necessarily all of them, but always in the order that um, that that we talked about. So St. Kenelm was a really good one as well, Beth. Um, so his father dies at the beginning. Again, that's um, absentation. That's function number one. He's got to leave because his father's died. And then his elder sister's going to conspire with her lover to kill him. That's functions number four and five. Um, reconnaissance, the villain actively probes for information to hurt the hero. And delivery, the villain succeeds and um, gets a lead on their victim. So we've got that one. He has his dream. He goes hunting, which I don't know why he did that. So that's departure. He's leaving safety again with a sense of purpose and begins his adventure. Um, digs his own grave. No, someone digs his grave. He doesn't dig his own grave. And um, oh, yeah, the magic stick. The magic stick that grows into an ash. Fantastic. Function number 14, receipt of a magical agent. The hero acquires use of a magical agent as a consequence of their good actions. And each one of these stories has hit all of these things, as well as, you know, I didn't have enough time to scribble them down. You can probably identify some of the characters that were in your stories as well. So not necessarily coming from Russia, not necessarily being traditional fairy tales but being folklore but the way that we tell stories is it's prescribed it's something that that we that we instinctively do yeah so that's what the prop showed us he didn't have anything about fox-shaped balloons and slide whistle zombies though so uh i was a little stumped by that one i must I'm say interested. so i want to know um given that everybody was so like oh man they keep killing all the big characters does game of thrones still conform actually i should think it does i mean the interesting thing about the the narrative functions in this is that 
you often find with, with storytelling, especially when, when it's sort of an epic saga, is that it, it will repeat and it'll go back. So, you know, the, the Star Wars example, you know, each, each sort of episode, each um, chapter starts with somebody leaving and going off on their, on their quest and, and these things happen. So with Game of Thrones, yeah, I should imagine that, God, it's been so long since I watched it. How long has it been now since that finale? Um, I try to block it from my mind, if I'm honest. It's so disappointing. <laughs> oh, dear. Is that why Kit's bought the, Kit's bought the uh, Seven Daenerys head? So, uh, I uh, knew that was going to come Sorry. Up. I, I could saying, see this one slowly I working. I order a brand one so we can all take it in turns to beat it. Well, good, uh, I, what I want to fucking know is right after eight years of that shit sorry Bertie my cat is looking pretty terrified right now uh, <laughs> I want to know why no one thought hang on when Bran sat there and went guys I see everything and the only way forward is for me to be in charge that everyone didn't go fuck that it's not no cool. one suspects he might have ulterior motives <laughs> Yeah, we all thought you'd go a bit of a wrong end, didn't we? But then, here we go, um, false villain, Jamie Lannister. So if you think about Jamie no, Lannister... No, no, he is yeah, a villain. No, 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 I'm a Lannister through and through. I look like a Targaryen, but I'm a Lannister. He pushed um, the out the window. <laughs> yes, first episode. Okay, he's a bit of a wrong end. Um, what about the Hounds, then? The Hounds are better false villain. Mm. The Hounds are great false villain. Well, there's lots yeah. of false villains in, in Game of Thrones, because, you know, people... Love that, and you can Even tell Arya is, isn't she? She is actually, yeah. Her her story, actually, that would be the interesting thing is to take all of the character arcs, to take you know someone like Arya and look at her um, through the through the narrative functions and see how her story goes. Because I mean, there's so many strands to it, you'd have to break it up in that way. Because they well, are Daenerys is definitely a false hero, isn't she? She is classic, yeah. classic false hero. Yeah, I mean, uh, lots of people. People were so upset. Is there an argument to be made then that any of these false characters are just fairly straightforward villains and heroes that have just been given more development? Definitely. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I mean, you, you think about the sort of pantomime villain and perhaps when Prop was doing his work back in 1928, maybe, maybe the hundred fairy tales he looked at it were a little bit more clean cut. Maybe... Is, is there an argument for nuance now, but you know, being a bit more... And then look at Shakespeare, and there's some nuanced villains in there as well. But. I'd argue that like someone like Cersei Lannister, for example, has never been anything other than a villain. Even though she is fully developed as a backstory, there is not She's an argument to say she could be a hero. No, She's a dirtbag. Yeah. <laughs> she is a dirtbag. She's pretty, pretty awful. Pretty awful. But everyone, so I don't know, you're saying that your team, I did one of the quizzes when it all came out where it told you what house they were. And unsurprisingly, I apparently am a Lannister as well. Yeah, that's what I came out as. And I just, yeah. you know, I, just, my I, I like the, uh, the Vikings that worship Cthulhu. Um, Greyjoy. Greyjoy. Oh, the guy without a cock. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that he's badass sister. She was better. Oh, yeah, she about it, about it, Greyjoy. Yeah, the, the pirate one as well. You're on, you're on Greyjoy. Yeah, he was just having fun. <laughs> I love that we've gone this way. But then, having said that, you know, in we talk about folklore and fairy tales and stuff that that we perceive as being having been around since the dawn of time. At some point, we will be so dead and so far in the past that I don't know. Maybe people will 
read Game of Thrones and talk about it like it's folklore. I mean, well, Game of Thrones is largely bor borrowed from history. I mean, you have the War of the Roses, the Red and the White Roses, so obvious. Mm -hmm. But also a lot of French history as well. The, the, you know, the Red Wedding, for example, is lifted out of French and Scottish history, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I hope, though, that in 30,000 years' time, when they lift it as folklore, all, <laughs> all kids studying it go, that ending was shit. <laughs> I can't believe I've read through this for eight years for that. Yeah, Jones not king of the world. That, what they'll probably talk about is not about Game of Thrones, but this historian with the severed head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be really funny if they revered Kit as some kind of god. And yeah, I'll, I'll take normal it. for academics to walk around with a, a lady. You've got that heroic pose with a head under arm. Like, if, I, if I ever end up at the uh, at the pub in person, I will bring the severed head with me. Oh, you've you got can, to. It's now our trophy. You can all walk around with it. Try it on. Yeah. Charlotte, has anyone ever applied um, his work to the Icelandic sagas at all? I'm I'm sure someone has. I I don't know about the Icelandic sagas. Do you think Do you think it sounds like it would fit, or you not? It definitely it some of them because I've got one in front of me right now, and there were bits you were saying that definitely applies to the the Faroe saga or the Faroe Islander saga. There is definitely a lot that applies to it, Amazing. and that, the only reason I didn't do the Faroe Islander saga for this was it's just too long to uh, <laughs> give it justice. Oops. Clive, and he has no such constraints. <laughs> <laughs> but your story, James, I mean, fit really well. I mean, Henry mm. goes hunting, so he leaves the safety of of his his guest in Sutton Coldfield. That's that's absentation, first one. Um, he goes into the woods to relax, lovely, um, and uh, and falls off a horse and hits a tree. So this is this is um, trickery and complicity. So it's you know, he's being sort of lured into a dangerous situation and some mm. accident falls him and then it all ends up with everyone getting their land given back to them which is function 31 which again for the star wars fans is is a big one because it's 31 is known as the wedding so it's basically a party so the hero is rewarded or promoted by his family or community and typically ascends to the throne not for this particular one but mm. it all fits perfectly how would flying vaginas fit in? Yeah, go on, Clive. villains. <laughs> I was really worried you were going to ask me that. I, mean, I'm, I don't think, I mean, they had their problems in sort of early 20th century Russia, but I don't think flying vaginas were one of them um, that I'm aware of. I could not quite, to be honest, I was laughing too hard because I'm immature. Um, <laughs> How do they see? Or are they just like bumbling around in the dark? I mean, they could, can they smell? I mean, it says it was looking for food. Oh, but... Sorry, sorry, Alex. Um, is, it, is it smelling active or passive? <laughs> the, the, more I, the more I think about it, the more I feel like it's a metaphor that maybe the Brazilians or the Hawaiian women, the Brazilian women, like, likes to enjoy life and enjoy everyone. And then one ends up burning himself in an awkward situation. Oh, and then the to be like, one. That's not factoring in the Hawaiian one that physically grabbed her own crotch, detached her vagina and sent it off to save someone's life. Well, isn't that part of the plot of Moana? She has to sail and put something back in her... A god, so everything. Oh, shut up, James. <laughs> Do not bring Moana, the Do Disney not. movie, into your flying vagina monologue. <laughs> oh, no, I've got a friend now. that kills me before that. I'm just saying... 
thought there was a prohibition on mentioning Disney. Yes. Uh, Kit oh. has pointed out that um, if anyone now goes forth and makes a crime drama in which flying vaginas go around solving crimes, they will be in breach of copyright because it belongs to History Act. <laughs> <laughs> belongs to the residents of the Mary Rose. Poor Lockie. Lockie thought he'd won it with the archers and then he got sent by vaginas. Lockie's, Lockie's story, you know, whilst bereft of flying vaginas, um, again. <laughs> well, I don't know. Where's where's Rawlinson claiming the credit? That was one it of does, the things. It fits really well. Yeah, we haven't talked about the raw flying core, have we? Yeah. <laughs> now, Lockie, your story has um, one of my favourite um, narratives. Sorry, I just want to go woof and <laughs> they continue. <laughs> Um, yes, you've got num uh, function number two, which is just brilliant. It's um, interdiction, which is a forbidding edict or command is passed upon the hero, i.e. don't go here, don't go there, don't do that. You know, they're warned against something. And I just love that. They've got two, um, two things they're told to do. Stop the Germans winning and don't all die. Perfect. <laughs> Absolutely perfect. Sets it right up. <laughs> love it. Brilliant. Guys, if you can't have yours, what's your favourite? Lucky. Oh, Japanese terror, clean my foot nonsense. <laughs> Wash my foot. <laughs> oh, Dorman. Uh, it's got to be Tokugawa shit foot or whatever. <laughs> James? Yeah, it has to be the Japanese stuff. It's just... <laughs> I kind of like the idea of the painted foxes as well, Clive. Yeah. Uh, the Japanese one was good, but I have to say, Alex, because I'm a brown loser, that the flying vagina wins it for me. Oh, thank you, Clive. <laughs> Alex and her flying vaginas. <laughs> Plural. <laughs> Beth? Yeah, to be honest, I'm much the same as Clive. The Japanese foot weirdness was, was absolutely spectacular, but... There is something about a flying vagina. <laughs> Do you know what, as well? I did briefly see something about the Inuits who basically would have been right at home on History Hack because uh, they have names in their folk tales, such as him whose penis stretches down to his knees and <laughs> the spirit of the shit pile. And there's one, right? So this is an Inuit. We're we tagging folk ourselves. Yeah. This also, is... they're a bit like the Irish in that they've not got very much to do a lot of the time, and so they're going to come up with... Um... <laughs> well, the, uh, this, this one is the one that revolves around I am only shit. So a woman was menstruating, the story begins, like all good stories, and so no one would give her anything to eat. Don't ask me where that logic comes from. Her luck changes, however, when she spots a whale out in the sea and she resolves to catch it. She waves her hands at it, going, I am only shit, I am only shit. And the whale begins to swim toward her. So then the whale swims out of the water onto dry land right beside her. And she says, I am only shit. And the whale died, therefore giving her food. It says, yeah. it's not entirely clear what this story means, whether it's a joke or whether it's teaching some old magic trick. It ends by telling people the proclamation about the power of telling someone that you are only shit. I don't know where the menstruating comes in or why she needs a whole whale to eat or why it works. But yeah, if you thought the Japanese were weird, ladies and gentlemen, that's the Inuits. I mean, that's a goal in extra time, Alex. I mean, that was... <laughs> that was where does that fit in? Why was that at the end? 
yeah. Does that even fit into Vlad's uh, list? I've, I don't know. I mean, I've got, yeah, 31 to go. Definitely trickery. There's definitely um, attempting to deceive the victim to acquire something valuable. That's number six. Yeah, <laughs> I'm only shit. Come here, whale. Come here, whale. Um, yeah, definitely. As if the whale goes, hmm, and swims towards <laughs> her. I don't, yeah. It's, it's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Love yeah. it. I like that caveat that uh, that no one knows if, in fact, it's just a massive mistake. Who didn't win? Alina, what was your favourite? Yours. The Mine. vaginas. It's all about willies and vaginas with you always, isn't it? Exactly. Uh, right. Okay, guys, thank you very much for coming down the pub. I feel that we have in no way, shape or form done anything constructively analytical or intelligent tonight. But we have steps that we have managed to get random uh, naughty body parts in and swear words in many languages and just done what we do best, which is talk absolute shit. So thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Later. Join us on Monday when we will be talking to Matt Bone about the thing that Matt Bone likes to talk about more than anything else in the world, and that is the Hawker Typhoon. He's been waiting ages to get on, and we're thrilled to be able to give him a platform and to bring you some World War II aviation, so join us for that. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 